puppet masters almost surely have a plan There's clearly maybe something there beyond the realm of man Until we've thoroughly tested every last close-chested view Find the more you think you know, the less you really do Carwood and Company Side chatters, it should be no surprise to us that eccentric, exceptional characters are routinely misunderstood by the commoners, and that those who buck the system, let the air out of authority, or push themselves to the outer limits of understanding reality are typically going to be treated unkindly by state-sponsored history books. Add the pioneering of an esoteric movement to the mix, and you can be pretty damn sure of it. Well, folks, as we've explored the never-ending depths of this weird world, conspiracies, mysteries, and the occult, We've heard many guests make provocative statements and bold claims about the colorful character we call Alistair Crowley. But the Great Beast was much more than just an enigmatic magic man. He was an artist, a poet, likely an intelligence asset, a mountaineer even, and an adventurer in the truest sense of the word. And we would be wise to better understand and fold in these other aspects of his biography to form a more nuanced opinion that doesn't rely on a legacy tarnished by paranoia and ignorance. And we could not do such a thing without the dedication and contributions of today's guest, Tobias Churton. An eccentric and exceptional character in his own right, Tobias is known as one of Britain's leading scholars when it comes to Western esotericism. A bona fide world authority on Gnostic spirituality, Rosicrucianism, Freemasonry, and other esoteric movements, holding a master's degree in theology. Tobias is also a filmmaker, poet, composer, and the author of many books, including The Gnostics, The Missing Family of Jesus, An Inconvenient Truth, How the Church Erased Jesus' Brothers and Sisters from History, The Invisible History of the Rosicrucians, The World's Most Mysterious Secret Society, Occult Paris, The Well-Respected and Often Considered Gold Standard in Crowley Biographies, The Beast in Berlin, and now, just a few short months after his latest release, Aleister Crowley in America, Art, Espionage, and Sex Magic in the New World, Tobias joins us to break down this lesser-known chapter in the life of the great beast himself, a real Renaissance man of the modern age, scholar of the mystery schools, and esoteric explorer extraordinaire. Tobias, my man, welcome to the higher side. Thank you very much for that sterling introduction. <laughs> Thank you. I try. I try. But this is one hell of a book, man. 600 plus pages on what amounts to just a few years in Crowley's life. But of course, the time period has so much going on that you really need a ton of context to get the full picture. And you reproduce so much of Crowley's original writing and correspondence that I really felt like I was getting a nice window into a fascinating character during an exciting chapter in history. And you're probably one of the few people who comes to Crowley not over an occult or magical interest initially, but actually a mountaineering interest, which is kind of funny, but it's also a great jumping off point or analogy for looking at Crowley in a different way, wouldn't you say? Yes, I think the thing about mountaineering is that you become immediately aware that your perspective on reality increases the higher you climb. And people who stay, as it were, in the valley of experience with things very close up do not have the perspective or the aspirational vigor that comes from attempting 
heights that you hadn't considered before. So in that sense, mountaineering is an allegory of the spiritual life itself, which is always a climb. And if you ever feel you're going downhill, it's probably because you're misreading something, <laughs> if you're finding it too easy. It's not an easy pass by any means. So yes, mountaineering is sort of appeals to people who are interested in pure spiritual experiences. It did to me when I was in my late teens, and it was through the Oxford Mountaineering Society that I first heard about Alistair Crowley, who had launched the first major attempt on K2, Karakaram 2, in the Himalayas in 1902 hmm. with Oscar Eckenstein. So that was my entree. The other thing was that Crowley was a poet, and that was what I wanted to be at that age. So this idea of poetry, mountaineering, spiritual aspiration, and a sense that the ordinary bod, as it were, is living at the bottom of the valley, as it were, in a state of materialistic illusion. I felt that in common with Crowley from the age of what I suppose I'd be just 18 then. That was now 40 years ago. Mm. I've been living with Crowley for a long time now. <laughs> yeah, that is just such an interesting entry point. And we know there's a lot of paranoia and rumors around Crowley, and he may have been a flawed person, but who isn't? I've heard you respond to some of those claims that he was an evil, dark person with something to the effect of, well, he didn't start two world wars, he didn't drop the atomic bomb. So when we're judging the wicked men of history, he's probably given too much credit given how much true evil does go on in the world, and I think that's a fair point. But why does he have such a negative image? What's behind the demonization of him? Well, I'd like to be able to say that it's just a facet of human ignorance. Hmm. I mean, Jesus was accused of being in league with the devil. He obviously threatened certain interests in the world, but... I think there's a sort of impish perversity to his own character, which gave ammunition to his enemies. It wasn't intentional. I think he said at one point, the more religious people are, the more they believe in black magic. And I think what he meant by that was that people who don't have a spiritual perspective on religion tend to get into the idea that they're fighting an oppressive, invisible force and become paranoid and overexposed to their fears. And Crowley recognized that a lot of what is called religion was based on this fearfulness. And so I think he was trying to play a rather too subtle game of goading people into bringing out their worst scotoma, that is, the things that block their natural vision. So I think he didn't mind playing the part of something that people might be afraid of. What he thought people were afraid of was truth, the simple truth, scientific truth. The facts of life are what people are afraid of. It's the thought of dying and decay, and the fatal aspect of nature is what people are afraid of. And we build up a huge amount of defense systems to prevent us being obsessed with the fatality and arguably futility of our lives. So, Society likes a whipping boy, and I think Crowley had a bit of a Christ complex, and I don't want to push that too far, that he was pushing himself forward as somebody who was incarnating a zeitgeist, the spirit of a new era. And in that new era, and he got this idea from the symbolists in Paris in the 1880s and 1890s, 
in a world which is going to go through a radical change of spiritual orientation and also is a moral disorientation as well. So figures who've been associated with pure evil, such as the idea, common idea of the devil, might also become figures of revelation. The old phrase, Lucifer, the light bringer. Crowley was perfectly aware of the historical reasons how the figure of the devil had become part of the culture and how it starts off quite innocently in the book of Job where the Satan, as he's called, meaning the adversary, is God's sort of prosecution counsel. And he's perfectly at home in God's court doing God's will. And this idea develops and develops until by the first century, he's become a kind of abstract force of evil. And Crowley didn't believe in this idea that there was this concretion of evil in a figure. He didn't accept it at all. And he felt he was part of a scientific movement which would come to understand the psychological bases of magical belief. And because of his ebullient humor, he played with this image, but he forgot very often, as clever people do, that not very clever people hear what they say and take them quite literally and absurdly. While Crowley might have thought, well, that just shows you how stupid they are, unfortunately, these beliefs can be damaging. And of course, they can be used by enemies who should know better. I mean, Crowley obviously was an offense to the organized churches because he didn't accept the idea of vicarious suffering of a Messiah or that redemption required the shedding of blood as in Leviticus and the theory of Paul of the crucifixion that we are saved through an act of a new Passover hmm. experience where Jesus becomes alive. He didn't accept that theory of human redemption. He'd had enough of it as a boy. His parents were fundamentalist Christians who believed in the literal inerrancy of the Bible, that it was literally true, literally written by God, maybe through a human hand, but the human hand had no will of its own or mind of its own. And frankly, it would have appeared to his parents that God spoke English, 17th century English. And this fundamentalism, this belief that things happen by the will of a God, was being challenged in the 19th century by the growth of the idea that you don't need a willful deity when you've established that things run by law. And more and more things that used to be thought of as God's will, i.e. storms, blights on crops, illness, death, etc., etc., have been shown to be the product of simple natural causation. And Crowley was part of that scientific revolution, except that he wanted to apply it to the development of the mind and the consciousness. And so he was interested in magic, partly because he had a romantic interest in it. It appealed to him against the materialism of the time, but he was also interested in finding whether or not it had a scientific basis as a system of mental integration. And unfortunately, these beliefs that he had that magic was important went against the prevailing orthodoxies of the religious establishment and especially fundamentalist style religions. And so to them, he was, of course, the devil incarnate because he was, in their minds, undermining the historic faith of the older understanding of the church. Crowley was interested in a new kind of religion, which would be scientific and realistic and true to the nature of man. And he felt that Christianity had 
in the form that people heard about it in their churches was outmoded and would be shown to be unable to combat science and would have to just hide from science or say, well, science is science, but religion is religion. Whereas Crowley was of that tradition where science and religion ought to be one because the issue is truth. And if we're talking about establishing law as the basis for life in the universe, then the law has to be totally consistent. And you can't have a universe where deities are sort of playing games. The only free deity, as it were, in the world, potentially, in Crowley's view, is man, who does have this ability to inflict his will upon the world and upon his fellows. And a lot of Crowley's thought is how he may best achieve the highest will within himself. Now, these are subtle distinctions which probably mean nothing to people for whom life is simply about going and getting and surviving in an economic system and worrying about paying the rent or the mortgage or whatever it is. But Crowley was of a background that had those things taken care of. So for him, he could indulge his interests as a lifetime scholar of the spiritual. Because he did it with great aplomb and great humor and great genius at times, I think that partly explains the opposition that he's had. But I think he's primarily it's because he's a dangerous thinker. He thinks about life and religion and human consciousness in a way which some people feel is very threatening, and they only have to hear a bit of it, and they get very scared. For example, his famous watchword, do what thou wilt, has been taken constantly as a license to do as you please. But it is not do as thou wilt, it is do what thou wilt. And the will, what he calls the true will, corresponds to what is called the will of God in the Lord's Prayer, you know, thy will be done. There is in man a higher will potential. And that is what each individual is enjoined to discover and live through to his best ability. That is the Crowleyan ethic. Mm. You find your true will. Now, if you actually look at that and apply it, you'll realize that it is not a recipe for disorder and chaos. It's a recipe for right living, living in accordance with man's highest potential. It's no good saying, well, some people won't do that because they don't anyway. Mm -hmm. It's not Crowley's fault that the prisons are full of people who can't control themselves at particular points. That is fair enough. And, you know, cheers to the apple cart upsetters. It's the kind of person that people in this audience should appreciate, although I know there are mixed feelings. And he was an explorer, an experimenter, and took rigorous notes about his magical dealings. And I think that's great. I love reading those things. Magic is so tainted by religious authorities, which I don't take my cues from, but there are two sides to every coin. And I wouldn't want to deny the potential for darkness, but it's definitely overemphasized, as you say. And to bring this to the book, Crowley didn't spend a ton of time in America, just basically three trips. And that's all super fascinating. You spend a lot of time going over the spy craft and espionage claims made about him, largely by the author Richard Spence in his book, Secret Agent 666. And when you analyze that perspective, the circles he was able to move in, the autonomy with which he operated, there might be some reasons to speculate about that, but nothing super concrete, wouldn't you say? Well, one's got to account for the fact that he was accused 
of being a traitor to his country by two newspapers in the 1920s. And those claims have had probably as bad an effect on his reputation as any other things that have been leveled at him. So when Spence came out with his book suggesting that Crowley had been from his time at Cambridge in the occasional employ or more as a voluntary asset of intelligence services for Britain, you've got to look into that very seriously. The fact of the matter is, is that J. Edgar Hoover, who took an interest in Crowley in 1819-19, when he was starting out with what was then the Bureau of Investigation, before it became the Federal Bureau of Investigation, he could never work out whether Crowley was an agent or not. And Crowley was investigated, which I draw attention to in the book with the actual documentation of the interviews that were held in the investigations which took place. And they were always inconclusive. And Crowley claimed guardedly, because he had to, that what he was doing was known about by the British Secret Service. And that is true. But when the British Secret Service in New York was asked about it, there was a denial but you could also say, yes, well, of course, <laughs> you are talking here about intelligence. And nobody in that game is interested terribly in telling the historic facts of every single intelligence operation that's ever been launched. It's not in the interests of the intelligence services to become pawns in an academic game of what really happened. The job of the intelligence services is specific to a particular period. And it's not exoteric history. Some of it comes out, some of it doesn't. And that's, unfortunately, in Crowley's case, what has come out is, I would say the evidence is strongly, he thought he was doing a good service for the cause of anti-German resistance to what Germany was trying to do in the First World War, which was to break down, as he saw it, the civilized values of Western Europe. So I would say, in fact, that it's a very important point because I think it gives an idea of the range of Crowley's activities and his brilliance as well. He did successfully undermine the propaganda effort of a group called the Propaganda Cabinet, which was run by the German ambassador von Bernstorff in New York, whose aim was to undermine American confidence in the victory of the Allies and provide information or disinformation if necessary, which made Americans feel that Britain would lose the war and Germany was ruthless enough to win it. And therefore, it'd be unwise to support the Allies. And they published several magazines in New York and Crowley got a job writing for them. And he wrote what he thought would be incendiary or at worst, useless propaganda that would be dismissed and that sensible Americans would realize was just garbage. Hmm. But people who didn't know what he was doing, he was in touch with a senior intelligence figure in Great Britain called Everard Fielding, and he kept him informed. But other levels of the British intelligence operation in America were not aware of what he was doing and needed some convincing. I think the proof of the pudding is in the eating. When Crowley returned to England at the end of 1919, he was not arrested, as were other traitors, and he carried on his business. And I think that, of course, people who are anti-Crowley said, well, he just wasn't important enough. Well, this is absurd because if somebody's been 
treacherous to the country, you want to make an example to them. And if Crowley was as bad as people said he was, he would be the perfect example of a traitor who could be arraigned and imprisoned. But Crowley came back to England with full confidence that he would be vindicated and he would not be subjected to arrest when all the facts were known. So the story of Crowleyan intelligence is a fascinating story in itself. And I dare say some more information may come out in the future, though I suspect very little. I think I've written about as objective an account of his intelligence work as he saw it, as can be done given the evidence at the moment. One thing I think is absolutely clear is it is no longer respectable to say that Crowley was a traitor to his country. This is simply not an arguable position given the weight of the evidence now, which suggests at least major ambiguity there. Mm -hmm. So I don't think anyone can responsibly conclude that among the many things he's been labeled with, that he was ever a traitor to his country, that that was actually true. Fair enough. And yeah, I think that you can look at the lack of consequences for his actions and make the assumption that possibly those actions were sanctioned from on high to some degree. And as a guy who's fascinated by conspiracy, I have to ask you about the Lusitania situation, which is largely considered a false flag that got the U.S. into World War I. Not only did Crowley arrive on that ship, but to quote your book a bit, perhaps the most significant hypothetical argument for British intelligence denying Crowley's intelligence role at all have been linked to this very possibility that it was Admiral Hall's policy to let or encourage Germany into acts visible to Americans as hostile to themselves and their principles. And you go on to say that Crowley did make the suggestion, at least in passing, that a German attack on a ship full of Americans be staged to draw in American support for getting into World War I. I find this to be pretty mind-blowing, and it's complex because of his writings for Fatherland and all that stuff, but this is a, a really juicy detail. Maybe flesh this out a bit more for us if you could. Well, I think read the book is what I'd say to that. Really. <laughs> it's, a, it's a complex story. And all I would say is that Crowley's claim is that he read the German psyche, the mentality of his opponents in this thing called the Propaganda Cabinet in New York, who were in direct contact with Berlin in the First War. And that he managed to persuade them that Americans would buckle if they saw absolute ruthlessness. Mm -hmm. That rather than be roused by the ruthlessness of, say, torpedoing civilian bearing ships, that they would actually be afraid to engage directly with a country that was that ruthless. And he managed to persuade the Germans that that was the case, of course, knowing, in fact, the reverse was much more likely the case, that, in fact, the torpedoing of the Lusitania was a kind of last straw in terms of public perception of whether Germany could be supported or not. So he says that he encouraged von Bernstorff and his people in the propaganda cabinet who, who worked with the Germans, that they should do some appallingly ruthless action and that way, the Americans would definitely not come in on the side of the Allies. Now, I think that's perfectly plausible disinformation exercise and evinces Crowley's feeling of the psychology of his opponents. But Crowley was seen apparently working very much off his own bat. You know, he was inventing these strategies for himself as he went along, as he saw the need, because he was in this extraordinary position of being embedded 
within German propaganda. And his problem was twofold. One is to convince the Germans that he really was pro-German because they weren't convinced of it. And it made him eventually do something which was quite absurd and outrageous and very damaging to himself personally. And he also had the problem of convincing British intelligence people that he was not working for the Germans. So he put himself to the most extraordinarily exposed position. And quite honestly, I think you could only conclude that he either did what he was doing for the reasons he said he was doing them, or he was simply mental. He was mad. His mind was perverse beyond belief. Now, there are a lot of people who believe that Crowley's mind was perverse beyond belief, so they wouldn't be surprised if he did anything of this kind. But I personally think if you follow the evidence through, you'll find that he didn't behave like a mad person, that he was certainly reckless, and his recklessness got him into great trouble. But he was as reckless as many a, an Edwardian adventurer. Remember, his hero was Sir Richard Burton. Sir Richard Burton, not the actor in here who was never knighted, sadly. Sir Richard Burton was an English Victorian adventurer who'd gone to Mecca in, I think it was the 1850s, disguised as a Muslim, the only Westerner ever to do it, disguised as a Muslim, was able to mimic everything he needed to get to Mecca, and he got in and he got out without being discovered. It was a great adventure with a very similar life philosophy to Crowley, which you can read about in his poem, Casida, which basically is a do-what-thou-wilt kind of thing. A, a man is on earth, not to be told what to do, but to find his true will and get on and do it and damn him who interferes with it. That's the kind of mentality Crowley had. So Crowley had this sort of heroic image of what a man could do. But of course, intelligence work is not based on mavericks. But then Crowley wasn't a paid agent. He wasn't working for the secret services. He saw himself as an occasional asset. And that's not an unusual position for an English gentleman to be in, in the period, certainly the Edwardian period. He knew the British consulate people very well. He'd met Clive Bailey, who was in the British consulate in New York during the First World. He'd known him in Moscow in 1913. Wherever Crowley went, he always got to know the consulate staff, dined with them, drank with them, entertained them. And it was through the consulates and the embassies, of course, that a lot of information is gathered and sorted and assessed by all countries. Also, it should be borne in mind that Crowley went to Cambridge specifically aimed at a diplomatic career, and he was backed supported in his going to Cambridge by the Prime Minister of England at the time. So he's not just some, he doesn't just made all this up. His background, his interest was diplomacy. He just decided that he thought he could achieve more taking the spiritual road of self-development. He said to somebody, do you remember who the last British ambassador to Turkey was, to the Ottoman Empire? And funnily enough, he said it to a guy who did know. <laughs> spot the joke of it. But basically he said, you know, nobody remembers embassy staff historically. He wanted to do something great like Lawrence of Arabia, you know. He wanted his name to be etched in the annals, if not of mainstream history, then certainly of sort of spiritual history. People who are often not recognized till many years after they're dead for what they really were about. And in that sense, Crowley has the instincts of a great man. And like many great men, he had great flaws. He was a tremendous admirer of Winston Churchill. He even had photos taken of himself in World War II in a Churchillian pose with the Homburg. He even managed to get cigars from Churchill's tobacconist mm -hmm. down in Piccadilly. 
you're talking about a man who admires the spirit of Churchill. Anyone who's seen the film, the recent film, The Darkest Hour, everything that Churchill says in that film is the kind of mentality that Crowley had all his life. It's uncompromising. It's direct. And men like that are only normally called upon in a crisis because in the ordinary peacetime situation, any man who really sees clearly is regarded by the herd as a danger. Mm. And Crowley is one of those. He's a whistleblower about life. I think if you get your knowledge about Crowley from cheap biographies or from poor internet sites, you'll come to any conclusion you fancy. But I've made a scholarly study of the evidence and made it readable and palatable, I hope. And I think it bears out the idea that Crowley is an important historical figure, not only in his adventuring, which is amusing and entertaining and inspiring to some extent, but in his psychological and scientific theories about the nature of consciousness, which I think is where he was a real pioneer. Mm -hmm. I agree with you. And it's just fascinating to me because you watch old movies or you read about Queen Elizabeth and John Dee. And in previous ages, it's a lot more obvious that the empire kept magicians around and that they were sometimes involved in spycraft. But regardless of how official Crowley's role was, I do like seeing such recent examples of that because on the surface, they tell us there's nothing to magic and that anybody who's getting into it would be wasting their time. Yet you see on the periphery, people of pretty high influence who are involved in that. And maybe there's still some connection there. Oh, I think the real essence of magic from Crowley's point of view is how to access higher intelligence. You've even got the word. Yeah. You talk about an intelligence service. You want at the top of your country people with enormous mental powers of perception because you are being challenged by the greatest powers of perception of your potential enemies or threatening forces. And if you don't have the very best that's available and some more besides, you are going to be outwitted. Now, for the average bod in the street, that doesn't matter too much. They're outwitted all the time. They're outwitted by Walmart. You know, they're outwitted by. Google, they're outwitted by their next door neighbor who managed to borrow something and never gave it them back. You know, ordinary people are constantly being outwitted, but it's no big deal. That's just ordinary life. We're all outwitted. I'm outwitted constantly when I'm asked to pay too much for something and so on and so on. But if you're running a state, the people who've got the responsibility of managing the interests of the state at a very high and critical level need to know everything, whether it's popular or unpopular, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. People in the state are asked to do things that the ordinary bod doesn't want to know about. Never mind, isn't going to know, just don't want to know. We don't want to know what our guardians, as it were, are doing for us. So there is a certain amount of license in intelligence work. And the idea of a means to higher mental awareness is always going to be of interest to serious intelligence operatives. And they may be easily fooled too. You know, I mean, a lot of time was spent, I think, in the 70s in the CIA on remote viewing. And I believe, you know, with very questionable results as far as I know. And a lot of these occult abilities are pretty hit and miss and depend on the inspiration of the individual at any given time. But magic as the idea of an organization of spiritual forces pursued in a scientific spirit according to the lights of the time, I think, yes, has always appealed to certain intelligence. And, of course, also 
treated with great suspicion by their colleagues. I mean, I think of Little Hart, who was a senior British intelligence officer in World War II, really was appalled by some of the interest in Rudolf Hess's psychology and the use of astrological charts of German generals and admirals to try and work out what they were doing. Whereas it's been shown that, in fact, the Japanese high command in World War II were susceptible to esoteric indices when planning military conflicts. Even if you don't believe in it, you've really got to be aware of this sort of thing. Because Crowley's interest in magic, he's highly intellectual. He's a Cambridge man. He's very, very highly trained intellectually. It's not cheap astrology. We are in for a lucky day-to-day stuff. This is a much more arcane and much more intellectual and academically complex field, hermetic magic, than what most people think of magic, which is some sort of aggravated witchcraft. So as far as Crowley was concerned, magic held the keys to what we now call psychology and spoke about psychological concepts before the word psychology as such had been invented. Now, most people today think that psychology is a kind of science. That certainly was not the case until Freud came along and to some extent legitimized the idea of an invisible unconscious, for example. Now, Crowley got hold of Jung's book, Psychology of the Unconscious, in 1916. He's one of the first people to read it, took it on his summer vacation to New Hampshire and realized that he said, using Jung's book, I reckon I can get anyone to meet their holy guardian angel in half the time it currently takes. Hmm. In other words, he recognized that part of what was called magic was in fact a system of psychology. And the encounter with the true self, the numinous self, which Jung calls individuation, he recognized in magical terms as the encounter with the holy guardian angel. So whenever he's talking magic, part of him is respectful of the ancient language and traditions, but his mind is always on the scientific factual basis that, in fact, we do have access to powers beyond ordinary reason. And this is the essence of the higher magic, is accessing powers of perception. It's opening the mind. Now, anyone who studies seriously has gone through already a kind of magical discipline. I certainly did at Oxford. The levels of concentration and abstraction from ordinary life required for real study is an ordeal. There's no doubt of it, you know, including all-night vigils with your pen, reading complex stuff you'd rather not be reading. You'd rather be out like everybody else having a good time when you can do. So I think he came to see magic as really a form of enlightened psychology, not Freud. Well, he took a lot from Freud. He thought that Freud was onto a lot of things. I mean, the recognition of sexuality as a major force in the forming of the mind. This was regarded as hocus-pocus, disgusting filth to the Victorian mind. But of course, now it's everyday reading in any newspaper. You know, We even hear about people who are described as sex addicts and things like that, whereas, of course, traditionally, they're just nuisances. In other words, there is a tendency today to offer a psychological explanation for any phenomenon, any unusual phenomenon. It's all in the mind. Yes, it is all in the mind, but what is the mind? Yeah. The mind is creative of reality. The imagination is a powerful, powerful tool, and we see this all around us today. And use of the word magic, while it obviously conjures medieval ideas of Merlin and flashing lights, this is only a child's view of magic. The essence of magic is to obtain power, and always was, knowledge. That's what it's about. 
Crowley liked to use the word magic because he was against materialism. And he thought the problem with modern science up until quantum theory, which he was very interested in, that 19th century mechanistic science was simply too materialistic and didn't give enough understanding of the relationship between mind and the material universe. Well, of course, he was growing up in a time where it was finally being realized that there is no such thing as solid matter. In that sense, the Buddhistic idea of an illusory material universe is, in a sense, true. When you penetrate the appearance of matter, it breaks down into electromagnetic forces and so on and so forth. And if you fundamentally altered the nature of the electromagnetic universe, the material universe would appear different to your perception. Mm. The mind organizes this reality into something we call the real. And we know that this can be altered, not always to our advantage. So when he's talking about magic, he's very much talking about a creative psychology, or some would say parapsychology. But he was very much against free speculation about what these things actually are. If you do this, this happens. That's why he liked Buddhism. He became a Buddhist for a few years in the early 20th century. He was one of the first Westerners to embrace Buddhism because he said Buddhism is scientific. Its understanding of human existence is simply observation of what actually happens. And it's based on law and not caprice. So there isn't a willful deity who has to be placated lest he do something, he loses temper. You know, if you read parts of the Hebrew scripture, you have a deity who changes his mind sometimes and can be placated and cajoled. And if you pray hard enough, he might come around to your point of view and let you off, as it were. You know, a bit like a school teacher. <laughs> These are anthropomorphisms. Regardless of whether you or I believe in a personal God, science generally suggests that whether there's a personal God or not, the universe runs on law, not caprice. We can pretty well be sure that the sun will rise in the east tomorrow. But we can't be absolutely certain, of course. All our reason is based on what we've learned so far, but that is also a limitation. And the beauty of the magical universe is you remember that the imagination is infinite, whereas the material universe appears to be finite and limited, whereas the imagination is unlimited. And magic has been called a technique of the imagination. As such, it is worth patient and objective study. It's not something to be dabbled with any more than you would dabble with weapons manufacture or dabble with nuclear power stations. These are things of power and they're influential. I think Crowley often wrote in his writings was obscure deliberately in the tradition of magical writing, which is that you cannot let too much of the cat out of the bag lest it serve the interests of those who would undermine everything you believe in. Mm -hmm. Obviously, he spent his life making a case for magic as a conception. And what we mean by magic in this sense is he's thinking of the idea that at the beginning of civilization, science and religion were one. Cult celebrated fact. If the sun rose, you could celebrate this with a ritual of thanks or something like this. Now, how that degenerates is when the priesthood realizes it's got hold of the public imagination and says, but if you don't bring me three bushels of grain and five heads of your enemies, I shall see it that the sun doesn't rise tomorrow. Or, yeah. you know, is this the power of the priesthood? Now, 
Crowley was very much in that Reformation tradition of breaking down the power of the priesthood and restoring man's primal powers. To him, that's what the new age will bring, is man reassuming his power over himself. Mm -hmm. So talk about misread. I mean, the idea that he was a harbinger of the hippies is very, very misleading. He would have found the lack of discipline, self-discipline in the sort of the hippie movement, the cause of its downfall, which I think indeed it was. But then again, you can't expect him to have foreseen what would break out of California in 1966. <laughs> <laughs> right. Man, very well said. I just, I love your interpretation of this stuff. And we've talked about the espionage aspect. So let's get into the sex magic part a bit. You reproduce a lot of the notes from his sex magic diary, his Rex de Arte Regia. <laughs> Talk to us about this diary and work, because I think this is where a lot of those assumptions about Crowley come in. And it's actually a little bit different when you read through it than a lot of people probably think. Yeah. Crowley believed that the sexual nature of man, as it was linked to his higher nervous system, was of magical value. And he spent a lot of his life investigating how this might work or not work. And so his diaries are not really diaries, they are the record of experiments, which he undertook. He'd got the idea that sexual energy was related to consciousness through any number of sources available in the late 19th century, from some translations of tantric documents by Sir John Woodruff, and also from his experience in India, he understood that sex could be a form of worship. And that what was sex for? What's it about? What does it suggest to us? Why is such trepidation? Why such wonder? Why such hysteria over the issue? Is it simply, you know, the means of reproduction or is there other dimensions to it? And he was aware to some extent of the Gnostic tradition that you could celebrate union with God through a union of man and woman in yogic mudra posture of communion with one another, seeing the other as divine. And he was aware of that, but he was specifically interested in the magical potential. In other words, could it speed up, as it were, the whole process? He'd been taught ceremonial magic in the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, which he joined in 1898, which was quite a long-winded process to try and activate powers of the subconscious, called angels or gods. I think he thought that the sexual magic technique could simplify that process. And in a magical ritual, you're aiming for a release of energy at the end of it. The whole thing is a bit like setting up a controlled explosion. You're after the release of the will from the barriers of space and time as it were, ejecting it into the spiritual, a bit like if you think of a rocket going up into the stratosphere and then into the vacuous space. It's liberated from the constraints of gravity and so on through a great excess of force. Now, in traditional Western magic, that could be done through what they call inflame thyself with prayer. So you had to become the essence of the prayer and have a breakthrough where the will was free and could operate on what was traditionally called the astral plane, which is the causative plane in the magical universe. So the idea of orgasm, which is a suspension 
of space and time, if only for a moment, and above all of the ego, which binds us to the spatial and temporal universes, that orgasm itself becomes the primal liftoff and release, not in a physical sense at all, but as a spiritual exaltation. And that's why, while the acts may appear similar, the intention and spirit of the difference between a sacramental magical act of sex and a physical act, as Crowley once put it, redolent of defecation. <laughs> right. You know, just a relief. Oh, I'm relieved now and all that. So that's the physical. This is sex understood as a spiritual mode to union with God, to achieving the true will. Right. And that's really important to note because it's not just about getting off, you know. I mean, he had a pretty high level thinking about sexuality, and it should be pretty clear why he would want to explore that potential magically. Yeah. And of course, he was also aware that in the understanding of his time, where it's slightly different now, there's been a sort of a beginning of a sort of sexual revolution, although I'd say it's currently halted in many respects, although people are doing what the, whatever they're doing. But I think that. Freedom of pornography is not the same as a sexual revolution. But he was aware that it was going to be the rediscovery of sex as an essential spiritual power of man that would characterize the new eon, as he called it, a new era, and it would eventually overturn the old order, which was sex negative. You know, sex is something that has to be channeled lest it become dangerous and disrupt the social system as it was intended. And of course, in religion, the Christian religion, but also all the monotheistic religions are terribly interested in suppressing sexual drives, and especially the woman, mm -hmm. you know. So he writes very eloquently on the liberation of woman, but it's not just so she can run Prada or feel that she's an equal in a business setting. He'd regard that as very banal, although certainly a symptom of the more deeper sexual and spiritual revolution. The release of woman and the release of feminine energy for him is a glory. And that's another thing which, of course, upset the churches because they would see this as tantamount to paganism and the worship of goddesses and, and sexualized deities and therefore step backwards to sort of the ancient Rome or something. Mm -hmm. But for him, the recovery of sexual freedom of men and women to celebrate their highest potential through sexuality. For him, it was totally liberating, not just in a negative liberation from something, it was liberating to a new kind of human being with a much more exalted sense of their own role in this life and a much healthier view rather than a suppressive view of their sexuality. Mm -hmm. You know, to tie all this up, you talk a lot about the art scene and Crowley's thoughts about American culture at that time, and even had some interactions with the famous poet W.B. Yeats, which is really interesting, who seemed to hate him. Yeah. But I don't think a lot of people consider those aspects of Crowley's life, so it was really nice to read about. What would you say about his overall relationship and opinion of American culture and lifestyle as we try to tie all this together? Well, I think he was in America in a very peculiar period in America's history its first entanglement with a major world war, which he believed that he'd done some part in ensuring would be the case to bring America into the world, as it were, and the power and force and goodness of America into the world scene. 
his view of American culture was that it had a long way to go, but when it fulfilled itself, it would be a world winner, that it had the potential artistically to break the bonds of European artistic constraints and would produce wonderful things. In his own time, he felt, and he wrote one of two articles, only one was published. One was about the past of American art. The one about the future was never published, uh, which is a shame because he had great hopes. But he thought that American art was slavish to European art, that it was largely a copy. And he couldn't understand how people who were in a country with staggering vistas like the Grand Canyon, obviously, or Yellowstone Park or any of the famous things, but generally an epic country, hadn't produced, obviously he knows about Walt Whitman and, and celebrates him, but really hadn't been up to its own landscape. And of course, he correctly intuits that this is because America wasn't part of its own landscape. The culture of America was imposed on the landscape, whereas the culture of the Plains Indians was integral to the nature and the natural wholeness of the place. The white Anglo-Saxon Protestant or Catholic who arrived in America were not part of the land in the same way. And even farmers who had to work like hell or pioneers, the land was going to give them something. They were going to own a piece of land and take something from it. They weren't going to be part of it yet. So the consciousness, he was very aware when he traveled across America, he did a great deal of traveling and noted the terrible expanses of nothing once you got west of St. Paul and away from the Great Lakes going towards the Rockies. Whenever man appeared, it was in some poultry little shacks. You know, he hadn't been able to come to terms with the enormity and he felt that the American mind was still in awestruck or even dull-struck by the sheer expanse of the nation which it claimed to have conquered, but really had only scratched the surface of. And in that sense, he didn't feel the American spirit had become a completely American spirit yet, even though there was a great deal of rhetoric, and there still is, about the great American spirit and the wonder, I think, of Spencer Tracy's narration to the How the West Was One movie. I mean, it sounds great. It's a wonderful sermon. But when you get onto Route 66, you want to keep driving. This is that sort of thing. I've just come back from Australia, and it's a very similar story there, where the white population lives on the edge by the sea and where there's breezes. And while there is some movement in the center in farming and so on, you can only farm so much of it because while the land is grand, it's also highly inhospitable. And I think Crowley was very aware that the psyche of America still hadn't come to terms with what had really occurred there. But when it did, it would produce works of great wonder. He had huge sense of the potential of America, and he was one of the first people to write positively and say that the United Kingdom, Great Britain, and America must come together to fight the common tyrannies of the world. And that has indeed happened, and is happening even today to some extent. And while some people would say America should keep out of the world, well, America can't keep out of the world. It occupies a very large part of the landmass of the globe. You might put a paltry wall against Mexico, but you can't keep the world out. There is no escape. <laughs> it's not Shangri-La. It's not an escape route. So coming to terms with where you are is a big part of growing up, I think. And he had great, great, great hopes for the United States. I don't know what he would think of the situation today. I think he would be, as usual, give a fair-minded view. Anyway, I think he'd say that there are plenty of Americans who can tell you that. You don't need to ask me. <laughs> fair enough. Well, it seems like he definitely had a very insightful perspective, uh, a very deep, thoughtful perspective. 
And I really did love the book. I learned about so much more than just the man, Aleister Crowley, but he had adventures in Montauk, New Orleans. He had that psychedelic summer. Even he came here in California, which I had no idea that he touched my stomping grounds of <laughs> San Diego. So really great stuff all around. It's been a lot of fun talking to you about it. I find enthusiasm and passion to be pretty contagious. And it's clear that you're very passionate about the things you research and write about. And I appreciate that insight. So before I cut you loose, tell the people where they can get more Tobias Churton in their lives if they're left wanting more. TobiasChurton.com is my website, which has information about me, TobiasChurton.com, and or your local bookshop and say, I'd like Tobias Churton's books published by Inner Traditions of Vermont, and they will get you, if they're not in stock already, I'm now working on my 22nd book. So there's a great deal to choose from. And you said at the beginning that I was one of the leading scholars of Western esotericism in Great Britain. I'm going to blow my trumpet a little bit, and I'll say quite definitely that I'm the leading scholar of Western esotericism. The? For what it's worth, yes, in the United Kingdom. And I think you're getting the fruit of serious hard work in my works. So, you know, if that's the bag you're into, come and share it. <laughs> Fair enough. And I definitely feel appreciative and lucky to have spent some time with a person like yourself being just a humble stoner dropout myself. But, <laughs> you know, fascinating stuff, man. And uh, thanks so much for the good times and the great book. Take care out there. Thanks, Greg. Bye-bye. Sweet Aeon of Horus, people. Tobias Churton dropping knowledge on the great beast himself. Despite this clocking in a bit short because of unforeseen circumstances, I really liked it. We also had two longer shows this month, so it all works out. If you were to read the book, I think you'd see just a ridiculous amount of detail, context restoration, and firsthand letters and Crowley content that makes you a lot less positive that he was a terrible person. Why are certain people demonized? Is some of it possibly a Christian reaction to magic in general? That it's all bad, this fear response that I think is deeply ingrained in people, in American culture especially, even in the non-religious. We grew up in this hotbed, and some of those opinions are going to seep in. So are we just supposed to think he's bad and evil because to actually look at his work would maybe offer a path towards personal power? Is there something about Crowley's work or philosophy or writings that's dangerous to the authority? Or is it dangerous for you? When does the state and the empire protect us for our own benefit rather than their own? I can't think of many examples. I don't know, but Tobias makes a lot of good points about, well, he didn't murder anybody. He didn't lead young men to die on the battlefields. Although, if he was doing some spy work, seeding the idea of sinking the Lusitania to suck us into World War I, maybe there's something there to be critical of on the geopolitical side. But we don't learn by slapping dramatic labels over a person and just saying evil or bad. That sort of stuff shuts down the exploration of a person and ideas, and I think we should be flipping over all sorts of rocks in the gardens of what we think we know and seeing what's really underneath. You lift up the Pol Pot stone and you look and see, okay, was this guy a genocidal tyrant? Oh, yes he was. Okay, <laughs> we can put that one back down and leave it alone. How about Crowley? Oh, well, it seemed like maybe he was an imperfect person, but a respectable adventurer, leader of some out-of-the-box perspectives that I think offer a lot of merit. 
and I respect a person who plunged themselves recklessly into the exploration of magic and the metaphysical, and really reaching for the game behind the game both geopolitically and consciously. Are you going to do that? If magic is real and nobody's willing to hurl themselves into the abyss and report back, how can we learn about it? You want to put that person down? I mean, that's really a sacrifice. Definitely willing to completely crucify their own image and take the adventure to places that the masses just can't understand. It's kind of funny because Jesus came with a message of submission, but also love and unity. And the story goes that people cheered for his death because they were too ignorant, too brainwashed by the state to get the message. And Crowley was often referred to as the Antichrist, and I think there's a decent parallel between that message of submission, meekness, and modesty, and Crowley's rejection of that Christian model for a more personal responsibility angle, learn and act out your will, which is a message that I think is a better personal philosophy, broadly speaking. Don't outsource your understanding of consciousness or spirit or magic to a religious authority. And you could say, at least in the story and the archetype, both sacrificed themselves for those ideas, for the ideas they wanted to put forward. I like the Joseph Atwell perspective that the whole Jesus motif was crafted as a false messiah to get people to act the way they wanted in a way that was beneficial for the state. But archetypally, it makes sense why Crowley would call himself the Antichrist in a tongue-in-cheek way. And, you know, people want to talk about rape and kids. Look at the religious authorities that tell you magic users are the evil ones in history. Consider the source, you know. But as the Antichrist, even with a different message, he was also symbolically crucified in the realm of public relations, very much so. And again, I think largely by people who are too ignorant to get the message. We all know the masses can play the role of an angry mob who really only knows the surface story. So now they're ramming through the doors of Edward Scissorhands' castle when they really don't even understand that he's not trying to hurt anybody. He didn't ask for a waterbed. I'm saying Edward Scissorhands and Aleister Crowley are basically one and the same. And people fear what they don't understand. I'm definitely not trying to do that. Because I don't know much of anything, and I'd be too scared to leave the house if I thought that way. But regardless, the truth about things is usually something you find when you look beneath the mainstream narrative. I mean, we know that, right? And if you have an interest in getting a handle on Crowley, read some of his writings firsthand and see if you think he's terrible. You might, but I hope you found this conversation interesting and it's clear Tobias has a passion that shines through, maybe a very Crowley-esque passion, especially for mountaineering. Seems like they are kindred spirits. And I think if you're going to live, you should live hard. Go for the gold, reject mediocrity, think outside the box. These are the tenets of the types of rebels and role models that I jive with. I don't think it's about looking for and justifying every action either. Like, let's ease up on the judgment. Let's not be so tightly wound. I think it's just about examining an exceptional figure who was pushing up against reality and taking some insight away from that. Maybe I like 60% of his worldview. Maybe you like 30%. It's not about covering a complex character in one blanket, but it's more like going in and doing the reading and then finding things to say, oh, that's something I like. I can take that forward. You know, doesn't really have to mean much more than that.
Everybody's got an expertise. Take what you find valuable in their work and cut around the rest if you have to. There's so many researchers that I think are great on specific topics, but then I really don't understand where their politics are coming from. It happens. But I don't need to qualify because I think most of us here by now are completely fine with a deeper look at a figure like Crowley. I think we appreciate it. I know I liked reading the book. We come here to dig deeper and look at taboo things a bit more open-mindedly. So I think this show fits right in, and I hope we covered the right kind of ground. I actually felt kind of proud of myself to read about how Crowley measured the results of his sex magic with that two-week window, and then thinking to myself, I don't know if that's the best measure of success based on what I've absorbed about magic and results. I mean, I know very little, and I also have the benefit of another hundred years of study and new data and results, and I'm only parroting the things that Crowley had no access to. But to be reading something like that and then saying that critique even to myself in my head, it's like 10 years ago, I couldn't even fathom having any idea what's going on with magic. I'm sure a lot of you did or would have picked up on that same thing after all the talking we've done with Gordon and that recent look at the data with Dean Radin. It's just a funny place to be, and maybe we're learning more than we think. Maybe we're circling in on this stuff better than we think we are. Consider your friends, parents, teachers, neighbors, drive through window operators, and imagine posing that question to them. Hey man, just kind of curious. You know, Crowley mentioned in his sex magic diary that he measured results by looking for them within the following two weeks after a ritual to rule out coincidence. Granted, I can see where he's coming from. But do you think that was really the best approach? 99 people out of 100 will stare at you wondering what the fuck you're on and if they're going to have to call the police and brace for some kind of incident. But you, dear listener, would be like, eh, based on what I see with the mapping of synchronicity and the study of intention, maybe that calculation method really didn't yield that accurate a gauge for the real potency of what he was doing. (laughs) I don't know, it's just nice to be able to even talk about that stuff. And I'm not trying to stick on that one thing that he wrote one time. I'm sure he considered all the angles, but it is nice to start feeling like you know a little bit more about something so often left so broad and vague, right? I think we're learning here, people, is what I'm saying. But that part of the interview that I just basically was talking about, I think is really just in the plush O, so maybe you don't even know what I'm talking about. Of course, I think if you like the Higher Side Chats, you get so much more out of that $5 a month subscription. And also, let me just say, I know there were some plus people who had difficulty downloading last week's Court Lindahl show. If you just refresh your feeds, you will find it there. I had a small issue with my media host for Plus. Those shows are obviously bigger, and it triggered a bit of an overage, and I sorted it out the next day, and we're all good now. Sorry for the confusion. Just try to refresh it. But it's been a good month of shows. Crowley in America, the Arcadian Mysteries, fixing our guts, learning about the real science that shows magic is real, and of course those sweet, sweet hidden hyperspace kingdoms. Hell of a great time for five bucks. You can't even see a single two-hour movie for that. And I give you five movie-length shows every month. TheHiresideChatsPlus.com Let's change our lives together. It's just good magic. Now, in this show with Tobias, I wanted to make sure, even in the free show, that we at least hit a little bit of espionage, sex magic, and art, which are the three pillars of the book subtitle, 
But in the Plus show, we got way more into the sex magic and really just the magic itself, the energies that Crowley invoked in New York City, the Aeon of Horus and what that was really all about. You know, we've had some guests talk about Crowley's a bad guy because he was trying to force or usher in or will the Aeon of Horus, which is a kind of a not great description of an era, in my opinion. But here's another perspective where it wasn't about him trying to usher it in as much as it was about him saying, this is the way we're going and this is what you can expect and we're going to have adult children. (laughs) I don't know. There's something there and I do think it's an interesting idea that you can find wider aspects of liberation through sex. I'm not really the one to wax on about that subject, but sex and magic are very intertwined, especially in their demonization by the authorities of the past. And I'm not an anti-pleasure guy at all. Just look at my weed habit. Regardless, I'm just saying that I thought Tobias spoke very eloquently on those semi-thorny points. That sexual oppression spills over into other areas, as would the liberation of it. And I think that makes sense. Sign up for Plus if you want to hear more, or buy Tobias's massive book, Crowley in America, if you want to read more. It really is a great book, and I'm interested in his wider Crowley biography, The Beast of Berlin, as well now. But that's pretty much it for me. I'll see you next month. Your move, Puritans of public relations, suppressors of the magical mindset, and terrorists of the path of the true will. Your fucking move. This is important, hear what I said. I'm trying to tell you It's not paranoia, not in my head It's just the hard truth Knocked on your door while I still can To ask you a question Cause I know your head is still in the sand Don't be sheep to your slaughter for the rest of your life Oppressed, oppressed, but you're getting woke You say you don't want to be stressed until the day you die Tough luck, my friend Did you get the memo? Can't you see that we're so screwed? Don't you know we're our kung fu? Can't you just admit we're screwed? I'm gonna tell you this anyway It's a scary dark world Scarier every day Scary dark world No matter what you say Scary dark world Don't think we'll be okay Can't you see that we're so But we don't have a choice It seems we're stuck here But you can find noses Drown out the noise Now use that altar End up your magic game And listen to THC You know you go with the entities If you ever see the UFO Don't be sheep to your slaughter For the rest of your life Oppressed, oppressed but you're getting woke You say you don't want to be stressed Until the day you die Tough luck, my friend Did you get the memo? Can't you say that we're so screwed? Don't you know we're our kung food? Can't you just admit we're screwed? I'm gonna tell you this anyway It's a scary
to your slaughter for the rest of your life Oppressed, oppressed, but you're getting woke You say you don't want to be stressed until the day you die Tough luck, my friend Did you get the memo? Can't you say that we're so 